This is the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Christian community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlenderfritz. Today, my guest is Tim Keller. He is a longtime member of a charismatic community and is currently working to establish the Sursum Corda community in New Mexico. Hello, Tim. We're so glad to have you with us. How are you doing today? I am very well, Malcolm. I thank you so much for having me on, and I thank you for the work that you're doing in bringing the idea of community to light by the podcast that you're working on and bringing out different aspects of it. I think it's uh, it's a work that's really needed in the church today. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It's been a lot of fun, especially, you know, getting to hear people's stories about community. And if you wouldn't mind as a start, just telling us a little bit about your story, your background, and how you ended up uh, becoming part of a charismatic community. Yeah, sure. Well, so I was raised in a very Catholic family on the East Coast back in Connecticut. I'm one of seven children, and I had probably a somewhat typical upbringing. I was an altar boy. I went to Catholic school in Connecticut there. Um, But then in 1975, my dad had the great idea of going west, and he moved to Arizona with the whole family. And shortly after we arrived in Arizona, my parents joined a charismatic prayer group. And that was something very new to me. And the the move itself brought a brought a pretty good amount of stress into our family because we just we'd always lived in Connecticut with our family and friends and and that was it was new to us and then fairly shortly after we got to Arizona my parents got involved in this charismatic prayer group and shortly thereafter uh, they joined a Catholic or it wasn't Catholic at the time it was just a charismatic community uh, it, later it became Catholic but they they joined this charismatic community. It was called the People of Joy at that time, which later became, when it became Catholic, it became City of the Lord. Um, and I pretty much hated it. I, I, and my siblings, it was something that was very strange and foreign to us. And so that wasn't, you know, it wasn't my cup of tea for sure. Um, but uh, surprisingly, by the time I graduated from high school, I joined on my own, as did a few of my siblings. And so that's been 40 years ago that I joined the City of the Lord community, and I met my wife there, and I really loved that community, and we're, we're actually still members, even though we don't live down in Arizona any longer. Uh, due to family issues, we moved from Tempe up to New Mexico, and about four years ago, we started the process of working to form Sursum Corda community, uh, a brand new community, and we'll, we can get into details of why that, but uh, that was kind of my, my quick background. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Um, how old was the charismatic community when your parents joined it? Were they founding members, or had it pre-existed? Um, I think they. The, I think the community People of Joy was founded in 1973. My parents. We moved in in 75, so they they weren't there for the exact founding, uh, but they were there early on. And in your experience uh, with the Christian life, why is intentional community so important? I know people can think it's kind of uh, an odd and esoteric thing to be part of a community. What what really struck you about the experience of being involved with these communities? Well, yeah, I, I think, you know, through my experience and just experience the richness of community life and intentional community in particular, um, I, I can't live without it at this point in my life. And if you think back on the history of just the church in the world, there were all of these ethnic neighborhoods. In my in my small town, we had our Italian neighborhood, we had our Polish neighborhoods, we had our Puerto Rican neighborhoods. And there was a, just a level of community that happened naturally out of necessity, more because 
people were poor. They didn't have, everyone didn't have everything they needed. You know, some guy had the circular saw, some guy had the extension ladder, some guy had the rototiller. You kind of had to depend on one another and you had to share. And what I think now I've, I've coined a phrase here, it's called a poverty of wealth, which is since we all can pretty much buy whatever we want and whatever we need, we don't have to depend on one another. I mean, material, we don't have to depend on one another. And, and I think that's brought a certain level of poverty. Um, and I think community itself is at, really at the very heart of being Catholic. And this has taken me a while to understand. And as a, a good friend of mine, Ed Lesher, uh, that, that really kind of taught me this idea that we are, all in a, we are all in a covenant community. Being Catholic means you're in a covenant community. By nature of our baptism, we are brought into the covenant, which is an amazing thing. And it's, you know, we baptize infants. And so it's, it's kind of easy to gloss over that. But we're brought into a covenant relationship through our baptism. And then that's reinforced when we re- receive the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the, the covenant meal of this, of this covenant ceremony. And so when we walk up to communion and we receive the Eucharist and we say amen, we're saying amen to, yes, I believe that this is Jesus, but yes, I, but I'm part of this covenant. And these people that are here with me are my covenant community. And so just being part of, part of being Catholic is being in covenant community, which is a pretty amazing thing. The thing is, people don't know that. They don't understand that. And I think one of the really important aspects of this is it's it's not just a, a nice to have. It's essential because we're supposed to have a level of unity among Christians. And where does that unity flow from? It flows from the Eucharist. The Eucharist brings us into this covenant relationship, this, this, this you know, amazing intimacy with the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. It brings us into relationship with the Trinity. That relationship is supposed to you know, be in us. It's supposed to transform us. And it's supposed to create unity with those that we're associated with. In fact, in John 17, Jesus talks about, he says, uh, I think John 17, 20, I pray not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word so that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So our unity, so that that unity with God is supposed to flow into our unity with one another, and that's the sign to the world that that Jesus is who he said he was. And if if the Christians, if the Catholics are, are not unified, if we're fighting and tearing each other down, what's the message of that? It's, it's undercutting the, the primary message of the gospel and the unity that we receive from the Eucharist itself. And so all Catholics are in covenant community. And uh, that comes with both privileges and responsibilities, being Catholic community. Uh, does, that, does that make sense, kind of that, that perspective, that kind of theological perspective? Yes, it makes a lot of sense. And I know you brought up baptism of infants, and I know that, that for one, one thing, can help to kind of blur the idea. I know that's, you know, what the godparents are supposed to be for, but too often, uh, you know, they're just seen as almost ornamental, but they're supposed to be vouching for um, the commitment of this child as he grows up to enter the community. And then also, I I like what you brought up about communion being, you know, of course, it's very name is should uh, point out to us that it's a sacrament of unity. But I think too often Catholics can become so interested in one aspect of it, which is, you know, that receiving communion is part of your personal relationship with Jesus. And so there can be kind of this, you know, like, oh, you know, communion is kind of like this intense, personal, private moment where I go to meet my Lord and Savior. And 
that's true, but as so often Catholics are the both and people, you know, Christ is God and man, and, and so many other aspects of our theology, we resisted the temptations of various movements to say it's just got to be this way or that way. So communion is both kind of the the crown of a personal relationship with Christ and this tight bond that forms us into the mystical body with everybody else, not just those in the church building with us, but with all these other Catholics, all these other Christians. And if we aren't living that out, we're missing such a big piece of what the Eucharist is supposed to be about. Right. Yeah. It, you know, so the first part I mentioned, that, that's kind of like the theological background of it, but there's some really practical ideas behind this. And that's, we really can't become who God's called us to be on our own. We, we can't. If we're isolated, we can't evangelize. We can't evangelize in a vacuum. You have to evangelize to something. And so this, I think the idea of intentional community um, it really builds on that, that it flows from this idea of the Eucharist, from our unity, and that our call to evangelize, that, that you know, being brought into this covenant, uh, we're, we're told, you know, the church in, uh, was it Evangelii Nutiandi, it says the church exists to evangelize. And so that's what I think intentional community is so good at doing. And so I would just want to define when I talk about intentional community, what I'm meaning because it's it's not it's for people that haven't experienced it they may not know what I'm talking about and I think it's based on some principles one is that you have to make a deliberate decision to live under the lordship of Jesus and his church it, it first it all flows from that you can't have intentional community without that commitment to the lord i think it's got to be open to the gifts and work of the holy spirit in our lives because if you look back at the early church really nothing happened until pentecost um, you know, they were cowering. And when, once Pentecost came, things could start to happen. And I think it's the same way when we're talking about intentional community. Uh, if we're not open to the gifts and work of the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, our work in evangelization and evangelization just isn't going to be nearly as effective. There has to be a commitment to live as a disciple for Jesus. And that that's, you know, if you if you read the book Forming Intentional Disciples by Sherry Waddell, you know, she talks about these these thresholds of conversion. And that last threshold is where you're making that deliberate decision I'm going to live as a disciple for Jesus. It's it's not something that just happens. It's not, you know, when you go to confirmation, you know, the, 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 the bishop anoints you. You have to make a decision. It's a deliberate decision. And so I think that's part of, you know, forming uh, an intentional community. And then you have to say, well, I need to surround myself with other people that understand this. They understand their call in the world to community and then you have to actively decide to build community because it's not easy. It actually takes work. It takes planning. It takes uh, many things that we'll, we'll kind of get to as we go through this. But so when I talk about intentional community, those are elements that I'm talking about. And what happens, though, when you have this kind of intentional community, it becomes an evangelization machine. Uh, it facilitates evangelization to a level that you may not understand why until you, you've seen it. And I wanted to give a couple of examples of why that's the case. So I've worked in many different ministries. I worked, uh, helped start and run That Man Is You group, which was great. I, I was involved with that for seven years. And then I worked with our middle school life team program or EDGE program for five or six years. And I worked with our diocesan men's program, the men under construction for nine years. And I love being involved in all the ministries. They are doing really good work. Uh, they're teaching really good things. But it really came clear and clear the more I worked in these ministries and in my background in community, how we're missing an element, how they're not going to have the impact that they should have 
unless you surround it with intentional community. It's the glue that holds things together. And so I want to give two examples of when I worked in our middle school edge group, we would, you know, we had our small groups and I talked to the kids throughout the year. And so it's Advent, you know, what do you guys do during Advent or when it's Lent, what do you guys do during Lent or it's Easter, it's Christmas season. You know, what do you do in your homes? And, you know, do you do any special, you know, prayers? Do you do any special songs? Do you have any special foods? What what do you do? And they they would look at me like I was from Mars, like they, they had no idea what I was talking about. And it became very clear that we're trying to teach these kids about the church and about the liturgical seasons. And then they go home into a home that is, it's kind of a sterile Catholic home. They don't have they don't have beautiful artwork. They don't have beautiful traditions. They may not be doing prayers that are tied in with the liturgical seasons. And so we're trying to teach these kids and then they go home and it's not being reinforced at home. And you can imagine if it was surrounded by a community where everyone was doing that or many people were doing that, how much more, you know, in the homes and in your neighbors, how much of an impact that would make. And the second thing I want to mention is that man is you. Like I said, I was in it for seven years and they teach some really fabulous things. Um, but after sitting at the tables in the in the men's groups, you know, Saturday after Saturday and hearing the same men talk about the same issues that they were having with their family and their children, it became clear that, you know, I don't know your family. I don't know your children and I don't know your wife. I don't know your kids. And so how can I really support you? You know, how can I impact them if I don't even know them? And so it became clear that, and we, we tried to do some things. Let's have a, let's have a, that manage you picnic. Let's try and do some things to kind of build this aspect, but that wasn't part of the, that manage you model. And so it just never really got anywhere. And so it became very clear that, you know, if we're connecting families together, if, if I know your wife and you know my wife and now your kids and you know my kid, we can do so much more. We can't just talk about our problems. We can actually help intervene in one another's lives and give us, give each other the support and, and things like that. So we, we change the dynamic. So yeah, I, I, the intentional community, that's, that's an awful lot, but I, I've kind of laid out why I think it's so important and what the impact can be in the world. You know, you, you brought up so many great points. Uh, for one thing, I'm just really thrilled that you brought up um, Sherry Weddle. She's got to be one of my all-time favorite authors about uh, spirituality and about the church. And I, I'm, while I was listening to you, I was remembering a phrase of hers where she said that one of the problems we've got is that we've got um, a whole bunch of what she called baptized pagans. Right. And she wasn't even just talking about um, people who are baptized and never come to church again, but that uh, the, the church has not emphasized that, you know, once, you know, baptism really does do something as opposed to people who say it's just a symbol. So baptism really does do something. But then that, that grace, that foundation has to be built upon, has to be accepted and claimed yep. by the Christian as he or she grows up. And if that's not done, as you're talking to, we'll never grow into that relationship with Christ and one another that we're supposed to have. Just because the sacraments do have a real effect, we can't see them as sort of like a magical uh, thing that will just take care of the problems. So I'm really glad you brought her up. Yeah, and it's true. You know, one of the things that you see in Protestant churches, which I think is actually very effective, and it's it's something that, you know, it, it's not a sacrament, but they do these altar calls where you have to get up and you stand up and you proclaim, you make a decision out loud in public and you say, I am going to follow Jesus. 
And, you know, that's a simple thing. And again, it's not a sacrament, but it's a really important thing in, in aligning your will behind, you know, this decision that I am going to follow. I'm, I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm, I'm deciding it and I'm willing to say it publicly. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the things that I, I think is kind of missing in, 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 in actually one of the things that actually I think these communities do is because they usually have some kind of commitment or ceremony where you actually stand up and you say, yes, I will live for Jesus as a disciple. And, and I think that that has a, a profound impact. It's really odd, you know, to think about it because uh, the Protestant um, protest against the institutional church started out, um, you know, as they were, they were more individualist in their Bible interpretation against more hierarchical understanding. And yet today they actually seem to often understand this idea of the, um, a communal or public profession of faith, as opposed to uh, kind of the sacramental individualism that has come to characterize uh, too many Catholics. So that's a very odd, um, a very odd dynamic there. Right. No, I, I think you're right. And, you know, some of the, to understand these things, I think you have to go back and you have to look at the Reformation and, you know, in the Reformation, they're like, no, 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 these sacraments really do make a difference, and they're really important. We really receive grace in them. And, and so then the pendulum swings, which is absolutely true, but they also have to be, they have to be activated. The grace that you receive at your confirmation, you know, you're given gifts, but you, you actually have to, you know, you have to start the engine and drive the car. You, you actually have to put those into practice. And if you don't do that, there's, there's like, there's grace there. There's no doubt, but it's dormant and you have to, it's like the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You have to exercise them. You, you have to get out there and you have to serve. And then they, they, they tend, you know, charisms tend to manifest when you are serving and you're serving others. And, you know, in that process of serving those gifts that you have, they'll start, you know, people will be able to start to see them and that'll become clear. And, you know, you may find out you may not just have a, a natural inclination. You may have a, like a real God given charism that that's, you know, that's supernatural in nature, but it, it takes those decisions. It takes actually getting out there and using what you've been given. Yeah. And that, that's of course covered beautifully by Sherry Weddle and her books. Right. Um, uh, and then too, you brought up the, uh, the fact that the best evangelizing tool we have is our love for one another, that unity that Christ prayed for. And I think it's so sad uh, today that, um, too often in, in you know, Catholic ideological debates, uh, the formation of intentional community and an evangelizing mission to the world are almost seen as opposites. You know, either you're going to be um, forming this community or you're going to be interacting with the world. And th that there's no basis for that kind of split in the gospel and in the witness of the early church. Right. And, you know, and I think when we get to Sursum Court a little bit later, I think we'll talk about I, I, at least what I think is the, the right the right model for how that's supposed to work. They're not they're not independent. They're 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 dependent on one another. They're deeply joined. And I also like how you brought up kind of the the fact that so many of the small group kind of ministries that we try and participate in or run as Catholics are limited because of the lack of that community. I've I've felt that uh, myself. You know, I've been part of discussion groups and part of a kind of a, a small um, men's group Bible study. And it's really great. It's wonderful to share insights and get to know these men and, and support them. But uh, it would be so much better if we could move to the next level where we were really living life together 
instead of meeting every two weeks. Right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, once, once you've lived that way, once you've experienced community that way and the beauty of it and just what a difference it makes in your life, you, you can't go back. That's why, you know, we've, we moved away from our community down in Arizona. We've been working really for 20 years to try and reestablish something that will, that will give us some kind of support like we had. Yeah. Can you tell us a little more about the charismatic community you joined then about, um, you know, you, you mentioned that you weren't uh, too thrilled about it initially, but that you um, became much more sold on the idea over time. You know, what really attracted you and um, more about how, how it was structured and how it operated. Yeah, thanks. So, yes, the community now is called City of the Lord. When it was founded, it was People of Joy and it went through some transformation. It, it was um, it was an ecumenical community, but but really there was there were so few Protestants in it that it made sense that, you know, we're, we're giving up a lot. Uh, we're not praying the rosary together. We're not going to liturgy together. Um, and so, you know, they made the decision that let, let's actually become a Catholic community. So currently, City of the Lord, which is still in existence in, in uh, Tempe and in three cities in California, it's a Catholic charismatic covenant community. And uh, it was, it's so amazing in many, many ways. And I'll, I think I'll elaborate a little more on that uh, in, in a minute. But uh, I was introduced to it, as I said, my parents drugged me kicking and screaming, and I really, I really didn't have a natural inclination toward that. But what attracted me to it was they loved me into the community. And it was, you know, I was a, I was a you know, angry 13, 14-year-old kid that my parents drug into this. I, my, my face, you know, if you looked at my face, I wasn't happy. I, was, I didn't treat these people well. But over time, and this was this was one reason I really liked the idea of intergenerational communities. You know, they they actually were kind to me. They even if I was mad and angry toward them, they treated me with respect. They they asked me about things in my life. I was a big runner, and so they'd always ask me, "How'd you do in your running? How did this go?" People would follow me. People actually would come and watch me run in some of my track meets, and and so it was really they wore me down, if you will, by their charity. And I didn't have a, a strong love for the charismatic aspect of it initially. But as I started picking up a Bible and reading it, and, you know, I'd read through the Psalms and, and, it, and it sounds fairly charismatic if you look at it, you know, praise my God, you know, with cymbal and harp and dancing and shouting. And, and you're thinking, wow, these, what would it take for me to be able to really do that? It's like, it's a really strange idea. If you think, what would it take for me to like shout before the Lord? It's like, you got to be kidding me. It's it, it and so but I saw it in scripture and so I said, you know, maybe they're on to something, you know, cuz I see it in scripture. If I if I see, you know, in in the 5th chapter of Revelation where they're bowing before the throne and they're they're crying holy, holy, holy and you know, I saw people who were actually doing this kind of thing in front of me and I thought I really don't like this. But the issue is, I think it's me. I think I need to actually dig into scripture and to see you know, is this, should this be part of my life? And, and as, as I, you know, really started reading scripture and, and seeing the impact that these people, the impact that the spirituality had on their lives, it really made me want to actually have what they had. Because I've been Catholic all my life, but the way they spoke about Jesus, the way that they, um, the, the way that their faith was alive, it's like, you know, I'm, I was only 13 or 14 at that time, but I knew I was still missing something. There was more for me to, to get. And so, um, you know, I slowly began to open myself up to that. And then by the time I was 18, I, I joined on my own. 
And what was the uh, sort of like structure? Like how often did people meet? How, um, what were the various activities that it would be involved in it? Right. So there's kind of two sides, like what did we do day in and day out? So there were, and it, and it changes over time. That's the thing with communities. You adjust as you need it, as your demographics change, as your people change, that always changes. But the kind of the constants where we met together as a community, usually Sunday afternoons for uh, an hour and a half or two hours, there was a prayer meeting, there was praise and worship. Um, there was, um, there was usually a teaching on something uh, that people would share about their life. And that, that's one of the things I loved about communities. People uh, people had no problem at, because they read scripture so much and because their faith was so important. They didn't have any problem getting up and sharing their faith and sharing like things that were going well, challenges that they had. So there was always a, a you know, maybe a, a two to three times a month, a prayer meeting that people would go to. That was like the large group gathering. And then there was also small groups. And you could be in a men's group. You could be in a women's group. There was family groups. There were singles groups, uh, family groups. There was lots of different configurations over time, but there was always like large group meetings and then small group meetings where you had fellowship and you had more intimate settings so you could share you know, more deeply about your life and you could be a little more vulnerable. So that was, it. That was kind of like the practical side. On the, the logistics side, we had uh, coordinators that were in charge of helping to organize what we were doing, you know, they would meet together and decide, you know, whatever it takes to, to run a community. Are, are we going to have a picnic coming up? Are we going to, um, what are we going to be focusing on? We had retreats that we did. What, what are the themes of the retreats going to be? How we're going to bring in speakers? So, so there were, there was a team of leaders. Um, we had men's leaders and women's leaders over time. And then we also had, um, we had accountability, basically like accountability partners, if you will, people that would help you um, live the Christian life and help you be accountable. And I would meet with, you know, maybe once a month I'd get together and I'd talk with uh, my accountability partner or advisor. They went by different names over time, but somebody that was going to help you try and be faithful in your Christian life and, and kind of hold you accountable and, and you know, some basic uh, kind of low-level pastoral advice, things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, what, um, so, you know, you mentioned, of course, it had a charismatic uh, spirituality, what were the sources that the community drew on as far as spirituality? And um, were there any, you know, like figures that really inspired the community? So, yeah, it was definitely charismatic in nature, as I said, because it was, it, was, it was founded. It grew out of the charismatic renewal. But it's, it's 45 years old now. And if you'd have to, if you'd have to look at the spirituality of what, what people do, it's very traditionally Catholic, that very Catholic piety. Many people, most people go to daily mass as my, as both my parents did, um, weekly adoration. They prayed, many prayed the liturgy of the hours. Um, there were liturgical, you know, during all the liturgical seasons, we, we, we do things. You'd, you try and bring the colors the liturgical colors into your house and different food and artwork and things like that. Um, we really feasted and fasted with the church. And so I think in many ways it was still a very traditional Catholic piety, but it had a Catholic dimension on top of that. But um, the in addition to that, just like day to day, um, it was everyone had a personal prayer time, usually 30 minutes, sometimes an hour long. Uh, and that was in addition to Mass. You, everyone had personal prayer time. Uh, we also read and studied scripture regularly. So that was really important part of our life as, as well as weekly prayer meetings. That was uh, something that would go on. And uh, so we had the formal ones and there were some informal ones that you could go to more evangelically oriented. 
Um, but also, um, we had something that was really cool that formed that we had for a number of years. It was a formal brotherhood. So we had a someone that's now a priest, but Father Charlie Garaya, but he moved out from California, from our branch over in California. He moved to Tempe and he started this brotherhood. And it was very kind of monastic oriented, if you will. We, we prayed the office. Uh, we chanted the Psalms. It was, that was something that was just, I loved that. Uh, we, so we, we started every day. We did mass. We, we did, we chanted the Psalms. We did the liturgy of the hours. We had meals together. Um, we, we did scripture study. We read a lot of the fathers. we learned a lot of beautiful sacred music, you know, the Marian antiphons in, in English and Latin and, and a lot of beautiful music. So, you know, it was a charismatic group, but it really had a great deal of um, Catholic piety from, from the ages that were incorporated into what we did. And, you know, if I were to give one reference, so, something, one document from the church that I think pulled in um, how, we, how we structured and ordered a life, it was the, the encyclical by John Paul, Christophidelis Lecce. I'm not sure if it's an encyclical and apostolic letter, but it was after they had a bishop synod on the laity. And Christopher Ellis Lecce is called The Mission and Vocation of the Lay Faithful. And in that, they kind of lay out what should the lay life be like? What's, it, what's, your, what's your mission in the church? And so I believe that, you know, the spirituality and the things that we've adopted and, and brought in really lined up very much with um, that, that document and what, what they were calling lay Catholics to do. One thing you've brought up a couple of times is the importance of bringing the liturgical year and Christian spirituality into the home. Right. I know you mentioned earlier that, you know, the school kids didn't have it. And now you're talking about that again. And in my own experience, that was really great. My parents did a wonderful job in, um, you know, really making the feasts and fasts and the events of the Catholic year uh, come alive in the home. Right. And in a way that, uh, my siblings and I could really participate in, could really feel and anticipate um, because, you know, Christianity is a very incarnational religion. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it was John Paul II, I can't remember where, but he said that uh, a faith that is not lived out as culture is not fully faith. If if there's some aspect of life that isn't being affected by the faith, then then there's something wrong because we're not a Gnostic spiritualized religion. We are very incarnational. So I'm just thinking about things like um, like a, a dressing up as the three kings for Epiphany, or um, we would strip, in, in my family, we would strip the house um, Holy Thursday evening. So take down all artwork and, and cover everything. So it's very right. stark. And, you know, right. the, the absence of a familiar picture can be a lot more um, uh, noticeable than its presence if it's been there all year. And right. then they would all come back um, on Easter Sunday. Um, mimicking the stripping at, at church. And, and those things really um, were really great uh, for us uh, as children, I think. Right. You know, actually, that's something we had never done, that, that to actually take out those things. That's actually a really cool idea. But, you know, it totally ties in with the idea that on Holy Thursday, from Holy Thursday to, to Easter, it's one continuous liturgy that doesn't end. You know, that's that's the only Mass they don't say, you know, the mass has ended. It the mass isn't ended. It's it's this this liturgy that goes on until until the resurrection, and 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 so. But you know, what your parents did that's really cool to be able to mimic the church. It's like we strip everything. Everyone, the world is waiting. It's watching and waiting. And um, no, that's that's really cool. 
I also um, would you, would you mind talking a little bit more about the the brotherhood component in your experience? Did did uh, the men involved all actually live together? Yes, we did. So um, our community they purchased a facility. It used to be an old Baptist church, and we would use that. We we kind of reconditioned it. There was a, a little retreat center and apartment upstairs, and so we had like um, you know eight to ten men that lived together in this apartment. And uh, so, yeah, it was fairly, it was, it was a level of communal living that's different than, you know, most of City of the Lord. No one else in City of the Lord really lived in that fashion uh, per se. But, but within our brotherhood, well, there was a brotherhood and a sisterhood. Now the sisterhood that started at the same time, that is still going on. So the sisterhood never, we didn't have critical mass with the brotherhood, but with the sisterhood we did, and there's there still a sisterhood. But um, yes, it was, um, it was great. We'd get up, we'd have, you know, um, morning prayer, mass, morning prayer, studied together. Most of us were college students, except for the um, Father Charlie, who was just Charlie at the time, that w- that was actually running the brotherhood, that was the leader of it. Um, but we had a really rich life. I mean, it was challenging. We did we did a lot of fasting. It was, it was, it was more of a monastic experience than anything, kind of like a being in seminary and, and a monastic experience. But um, especially, you know, if you're a young man and going to Arizona State University, which is, you know, one of the top 10 playboy party schools. So there's a lot of temptations around. And so having that focused, intense spiritual life uh, of prayer and fasting and um, it wasn't just fasting, but it's fasting and feasting, you know, to have that really in developing that brotherhood. There's nothing like that. I I really really loved the the brotherhood and everything that I got out of that, and I, I feel like that really did prepare me very well for marriage. And um, so yeah, it was a great. And, and there's some communities, larger communities, that they started brotherhoods, and they 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 have you know 150 guys throughout the world that are doing amazing missionary work and teaching in seminaries. And was there sort of like an element of uh, in in the brotherhood? Was there an element of um, like income sharing and, and- uh, communal living in that sense? Well, um, not income sharing because we were all poor students, but we just, we did have all of our meals together. So, you know, it's like, if you're going to live here, it's going to cost you whatever, $200 a month or how, I don't remember what the, what the number was, but you know, everyone, we put a, put, you know, everyone put in money, we paid for the apartment, we bought all of our food together, but we didn't, you know, merge bank accounts or nobody took on my student debt or anything like that. That was, it wasn't that level of, um, of community. It, whereas I think in the sisterhood, I'm not positive about this. I've actually never asked them. I think they may do that. And, and, and I think in other levels of brotherhoods in other communities, I think they probably do that, but that's not something we ever did. What was the, you, I know you mentioned at one point, I can't remember if this was earlier in this conversation or if, during our phone call a few weeks ago, you mentioned that the, uh, city of the Lord community was very, um, evangelical and missionary oriented to the wider world. What was that mission like? What did you do to uh, go out to the wider world? Yeah. So yeah, thank you for that question. It's a great question. We, I think because of the way the community formed, it really came out of this idea of this impersonal encounter with the Lord, people's, people's like personal Pentecost, if you will, the faith came alive. And so I think one of the missions of City of the Lord always was is how do we enable that personal encounter with the Lord to happen? And so throughout the history, that's that there's been so many things that they've done to try and do that from retreats to prayer meetings to uh, things within the parish, uh, you know, just so many things that they, they've tried to facilitate that personal encounter with the Lord. 
Um, and in addition, to make sure that we're bringing the gifts and charisms of the Holy Spirit into our lives and into the church. And so, for example, at Our Lady of Mount Carmel, which is the, the parish where uh, the, most of the community activities happen, uh, the priest there, Father John, he decided that, you know, he was around community. He had no experience prior to this with anything like that. But he said, you know, let's actually do healing masses. And so they started doing a series of healing masses where uh, he would offer the mass and we'd have people from City of the Lord set up prayer stations after mass and just pray with people for healing for all sorts of, you know, what do you need prayer for? And people would sit down and they, they'd pray. It could be a physical healing. It could be a relationship and just asking the Lord to, to bring his healing power in. And so um, I think the city of the Lord was very evangelical in that nature, in that it was really it was really focused on taking what we had, this, this experience of personal encounter, these gifts of the Holy Spirit, and trying to give them away to people. And um, so I, I think that was part of it. But being another part of community itself is a mission, actually building community because it's a lot of work. That is a mission because if, if you think of the, 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 the image that it brings to the world where people can actually experience a love that they never may have before, it gives them oftentimes a sense of belonging that they've never known. And I know personally, I, my, my wife and I were chatting about this. She said, make sure that you say the sense of belonging that you had being in a community, that you felt like you were a people set apart. And I don't mean like we're so special that no one else is, but you, you really believe that you were loved by God. And that that you were a conduit of his grace and mercy for the world and you wanted to give that away. So, you know, that that sense of belonging really is pretty amazing in the world. And, you know, as Catholics, we have a large church and it, you can get lost in the sea of, of people. But within a community like this, you had a tremendous sense of belonging. And um, and that, I think, really helped with the evangelization, because once people started to feel that and they could see that, there, there was a sense that they wanted to be part of that. They wanted to have that in their life. It's very beautiful. It made me think about how uh, Mother Teresa would talk about how, you know, we have to be the face of God to those right. around us. to show, right. Because, you know, uh, I think it was Father Michael Gately talking about how uh, after the fall, uh, human beings are naturally suspicious of God. That was the initial temptation in the garden that somehow God wasn't really looking out for us. He was somehow holding back on us and not not actually going to do what was right for us. And that to overcome that, Christ came to show us his love and as part of his mystical body, then we have to go out and, and really show that love. And the best way, as you said, to do that is uh, the community. Right. I, I think it's a, it's a very important part. Yes. Um, and if you think of it, God's plan for the world is you and me. It's like couldn't you come up with a better plan than that? Because it's like, come on, that, that doesn't, you know, picking these 12 guys and saying, go out and change the world. It's like, that's your plan. Come on. What, what, you know, but, but it is, it's like in, um, you, you know, our, our, our priest at our parish is, is very good at saying this is that, you know, it's that we are supposed to be taking the spirit of Jesus out into the world. You know, God, God lives in us and we're supposed to take it out to the world. And that, that's very much that, that, um, that model set down in Christophidelis Leci that we're supposed to be transforming the temporal order. We're supposed to be in the world in as leaven in the world, transforming it. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's scary when you think that we are God's plan. We're, we're, we're his hands and feet in the world. I know it. it uh, I remember I was thinking about this a while ago and thinking that, you know, 
uh, it's like a parent with a small child. The, the child wants to help. Um, and it's good for the child to help. The mm-hmm. parent doesn't need help. And as a matter of fact, <laughs> having the child included uh, will probably actually make things worse. You know, like the job won't be done quite as efficiently as if the adult just did it. But uh, because it's good for the child, it's right for the adult to to bring the child into what's being done and, and allow the child to show um, their love and interest that way. And I was thinking about how similar it is uh, with our working for God, you know, like uh, obviously, you know, like we're not terribly useful to God. God could do it better without <laughs> us. And yet, and yet he brings us in. It's so amazing his goodness to us to, to honor us by allowing us to share in the plan. Right. But it's, I think it has to do with the nature of love is that um, I mean, God could do it easier. You know, he could just infuse love into the world in a different way. But he knows that, you know, we have our free will and that for us to exercise our free will in making those choices and making those sacrifices and growing in that, that actually transforms us. It doesn't do any, it doesn't bring anything to him. It transforms us in that process. We're, we're the ones that are changed by, by that charity, by, by giving away what we've been given. And um, yeah, it's a, uh, it is it is a funny plan, and uh, but I'm I'm glad that he's um, he's he's given it to us and laid out the grace of the church so that we 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 understand it and we can we can grow in that way. One thing it it, uh, it makes you think about too is that uh, uh, Aristotle said he was I can't remember where this is in his works, but he was talking about whether um, God, the divine, and men could be friends. And the answer was no, because of course we as human beings can only receive, like we don't have anything to give. And in, in a strange way, you know, because God wished to be, have this deep friendship with us, he got around that by giving us things that we could give back. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> it's amazing. Right. Yeah, no, that is, um, it, there's, um, one of the fathers I read during Lent, you know, I do my, uh, my office of readings and they've got readings from the fathers and, and I don't remember who it was that said it, but it's like, um, if if we're, we're giving ourselves, then we we never are we're never wanting in what to give. That we always have something to give if we're giving ourselves. If we're you know if it's our money, or you know then we we can run out of that. But if if we're supposed to be giving ourselves away, then we're never lacking uh, something to give. You mentioned a little earlier about um, your pastor, you know, integrating your community into the parish life. And that brings up something I'd like to talk about, your relationship to the the wider church in your local place. Because I know that that can sometimes be kind of fraught. Either the wider church can reject um, a more intentional, committed community because they think they're odd or out of place. Or unfortunately, communities can sometimes... Um, just develop an antagonistic relationship to the wider church, feel that they're, you know, uh, special in some way, and therefore all the other people around are second class, and it can create all these uh, mutually uh, difficult tensions, which are really damaging both to the community and the church. So how did that play out in, in your experience? Right. You know, so, you know, I was a kid when I, when I just, my parents brought me in and, and, and so there were leaders behind there kind of working on that stuff, but um, we actually had a really good relationship with the church. And so there, there's a formal relationship. Now the city of the Lord has received the status as a juridical person, which means something in canon law. 
and uh, but it, it's not trivial to get that, and it gives us certain rights within the church. Um, but we've really had a good relationship with the local church, and and as I said, with our with our parish pastors, neither of whom you know, uh, Father McCready uh, originally, and then uh, Father John. Um, neither of them were, you know, charismatic by nature, but I think they really grew to appreciate and count on people from the community to actually help within the church. And then um, the, the bishop, uh, who's Bishop Olmsted currently down in Phoenix, he would annually have a mass with the community. And the nice thing is, I think when he was there, because bishops are under a lot of stress and pressure, and it seems like he could let his hair down. He actually felt like he was in a safe place. And um, when, when they would celebrate, when he would come and celebrate Mass, it was a really blessed and joyous event. And I think he really, really liked it himself just because he felt like this isn't a group of people that are, that are working to undermine me, but they're actually, you know, they, they've got a similar mission to what I'm trying to do. And so uh, thankfully, City of the Lord has had a very good relationship with the church. Yeah, that's great. And that's, it gets me so important, too, because once there's kind of a because I, I unfortunately have experienced what can happen when a community has a fundamentally antagonistic um, outlook. And it really, it's of course, it's bad for the wider church because they just tend to be a problem, but it's really, really bad for the community. It tends to warp everything about them um, because, you know, unity, as we were saying, was so fundamental. If it's um, a community, oddly enough, should be all about, you know, Forming community, forming community and greater unity among people, but sometimes it can be, I think the temptation can be that that the community can think it would have greater unity if it at the same time created division from other um, Catholics, other Christians around them, and that's uh, that's sort of the the opposite of what should be happening. Right. Yeah. So I think you can become uh, confrontational and things like that, and and I think. You know, I think the religious orders that, you know, the Dominicans and Franciscans, they have particular things that they do, and they know that they're not the only only way within the church to live their life. And, and they, you know, they, they've, they're mature enough to know that we do these things, we do may do things that are unique. There may be, you know, the Dominicans do things one way, the Franciscans do them another way. Uh, they're both valid ways of doing it. It, it may be just what, what kind of spirituality you may be called to or what, what's, what's attracted to you. And so I think within a community too, I think it's important to have that kind of thing. It's like, like we're, we're not the only way that you can live out your Christian life. This is one way, it may be a very good way. It's not the only way. Right. I, th- I think that is the thing because there's nothing wrong with being distinctive. Obviously every order right. has had their charism. There's that, uh, that funny joke about how a Franciscan saying, you know, in so many things, other orders do it better. Uh, uh, Dominicans are better at teaching and Dominicans are better at working and Jesuits run better missions. But when it comes to humility, we Franciscans are the top. <laughs> and, and, but uh, jokes aside, you know, like there are these, these different pieces and uh, you know, the diversity of charisms, the diversity of organizations can build up the church. So long as each organization uh, realizes that they're not, you know, not the only thing that don't have kind of a, kind of an almost an imperialistic or aggressive outlook on all the other groups, you know, like seeing them as uh, competitors. Right. Right. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. That can happen. And it's something that any, any group you have to watch out for. Exactly. Uh, So one of, one of the goals, I guess, of this whole series of podcasts is really to expand people's imagination as to what's possible, because I think many uh, good Catholics uh, just really have a hard time imagining 
what it would look like to live a more intentional and committed and community-centered life. So can you just talk about some of the, the highlights of living in community, some of the things that can really um, work on the imagination like good stories uh, tend to do? Right. Okay. So, you know, I want to, the things I want to share are things that, that were able to happen in City of the Lord. And, and, you know, the community that we're forming, we're nowhere near at this level yet. And so I don't want people to hear this and think I could never get there. You can get there. It will take a little while. It's, it's a kind of a long process. But I want to share because I think people's vision is limited by their experience. They don't know what God's already doing in the church. And he's doing amazing things. And so that's why I want to share some of these things, not to say, oh my gosh, I have to, you know, I have to do all of these things, but to say the kind of things that are possible in a community. And so, you know, early on, it became clear that community was, they were really focusing on, we're trying to create a counterculture to what's offered in the world. And we want, you know, not just this dour dour experience, but we want a life-giving culture that's built around the liturgical year. It's built on supporting one another and celebrating life. You know, you you attract more, uh, you know, more whatever fly bees with honey than with vinegar, whatever that saying is that, you know, if people can see real life happening, they're going to be attracted to it. So I'm going to kind of do a romp through some of the things that we, we used to do in our community just to, to, to kind of pick people's imagination about what, what things are possible. So, you know, I'm going to kind of follow the liturgical year. At the beginning of the liturgical year in Advent, there was always a woman's Advent brunch. Uh, Advent, you know, getting ready for Christmas is a really busy time, but they would get together, get the women together and they would slow down and they would have a time to just re- enjoy each other, um, have, you know, have a really nice brunch and to start to prepare and talk about the, the Christmas season and get, get women ready to, for that, for the kind of the onslaught. Um, you know, many of the families, they celebrated St. Nicholas feast day. I think that's on December 6th. Everyone put your shoes out. Um, as you know, within the church year, there were many, many feasts and solemnities that, that people celebrated in many different ways. Um, so posadas, okay. Um, uh, later on in the community life, they started doing the annual posadas through the neighborhood, where they would, they would, you know, pass house to house, finding a place for Mary, and um, you know the kids would dress up and they would be able to do all that right within the neighborhood. Uh, one of the really cool things that we did um, in City of the Lord was what's called our trolley party. So Tempe has these trolleys that run around the city. And there's little trolleys, you know, like San Francisco trolleys. Um, but you can rent them. And so many years ago, we started renting uh, a trolley uh, during Christmas season and we would have a trolley party. So they would come to the house and they'd pick up, you know, 30, 40 people and they'd take them around the neighborhood and you'd sing Christmas carols and you would go look at the lights. But they would usually have the trolley party between two houses of people in community. So in their front yard, they'd have some bonfires set up. They'd have food set up. They'd have drinks and, you know, hot mulled cider and all sorts of things. And neighbors from, from all around would come. They did, you know, walk down the street for the trolley party. They'd be singing. It was just a great, uh, great thing to do in the Christmas season. So that's, that was, you know, like one of the things that we did there that was unique to Tempe because they have trolleys that you can rent. Um, in, uh, in the spring over President's Day weekend, we had an annual convocation where, where families from all the different branches of the community would get together and it would be like a, a retreat, but there would be fun for all the kids, you know, all the way up to 18 years old. They, it would be primarily for them just a fun time. They'd go, they'd swim, they'd play Frisbee, they'd do all sorts of fun things while the adults uh, would have a retreat and we'd, we'd, we'd bring in a speaker, you know, uh, during Lent, as I said, People really did fast. They prayed a lot. They fasted. They they gave alms. They did stations at the parish. So that was very 
uh, very important is, you know, celebrating that Easter vigil. You know, we would go to mass at church and many times we'd go to the Easter vigil mass and come back at midnight or one in the morning, and then have a big feast. Because if you fasted pretty stringently during Lent, then, you know, you're really looking forward to celebrating when Easter comes. And, and that, that is a, that's something that's, that's, that's important that people miss that if, if you don't fast, you can't really feast. Um, that was a great thing. Easter's Easter vigils. Uh, then we always have spring picnics open to people and we'd have games and, you know, everyone bring food, cook out in the park, invite people to that. During the summer, there'd always be socials. Um, we didn't meet together as a community as much in large groups. And so they would just have a lot of summer socials at people's homes. And, and the thing about everything that city of the Lord did, it was always evangelical. If you invited a guest um, you know, you get into conversations and people are always looking, you know, thinking of the Sherry Waddell, uh, moving people through these thresholds of conversion. People, their their radar is up. They're always they're always helping. If you know, you get in a conversation, they're always going to try and nudge you forward a little bit in that that level of conversion. So that was just kind of in the water we drank, that you always have those your evangelical radar up. Um, another thing that was amazing, Hoodstock. Um, so. Uh, within the, the community there, there's a whole bunch of families moved closer together, which is right near the church, but there's a big U in the neighborhood. And uh, they they petitioned the city and they could block off the, the street. And they had this big, you know, probably 60 or 70 houses within this area. And they had this really fun block party and they would have musicians and face painting and um, just really fun life. And, and of course, all the neighbors are invited. You put out flyers, come to the, come to the thing. And so it's you're just building relationships with people, even though you're not out there preaching the gospel, you're building relationships with people and say that you matter. You know, even you, you may be Presbyterian, come to our party. You may be atheist, come to our party, you know, experience your neighbors. And it really brought a lot of life. You know, these are the kind of things that as, as communities grow and they have resources and ideas, you can, you can put things together like that. And then we had so many different things. We had annual men's retreats, annual women's retreats, teen retreats, kids retreats, um, there was just neighborhood life that happened. People, uh, people wanted life to happen in their yards. And so they built fire pits in their front yards or, or front porches so that you couldn't walk through the neighborhood without running into neighbors and being, you know, so, someone was always doing something outside. So uh, it really brought a lot of life to the neighborhood. And then, then, of course, you have something Lord's Days. That was something that was really, really prevalent where um, in, that may be. Are you familiar? Have you ever been to a Lord's Day celebration? Are you familiar with that? Um, I've heard of people doing things like that, but I haven't personally experienced that. Right. Well, it's kind of modeled on, you know, the, the Jews when at the sundown Friday night, they would have certain things that have prayers, they would light candles and they were getting ready for their Sabbath. And so that was like the model of trying to um, make the Sabbath holy. And so people would, um, you know, th that would be where you set aside the cares of the past week and prepare for the Lord's day. So you would, you know, your house would be clean by then you would, you would, you'd get on some nicer clothes, you'd prepare a nicer meal, especially if it's a time like of fasting during Lent. It's the Lord's Day. Well, Lord's Day, it's, 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 uh, you're going to have something, you might have dessert or something like that. But it was a time when so many families would share this. Lots of families would get together with other families. And there was always lots of singing and there was lots of toasting and honoring one another. And there were always just a really fun, great culture building thing that was very common. And then within within community, you had things like your prayer chains, your meals for sick people. Uh, someone had a baby; people need help. Caring for the sick, uh, service to one another—that was just a regular thing. The last thing I want to mention in this this realm of kind of creating culture and life was uh, it may seem like sound like a strange thing, but 
you know, after 45 years, we had many people within the community die, including both of my parents. And they, women in the community, they created this beautiful gold funeral pall that goes on the casket. And everyone in the community that's died, their name is now embroidered into this, into this funeral pall. And it became a tradition um, and it, something like that, that, that may sound like a small thing, but if you come to one of our funerals in our community, you know, at the parish, but it's a, it's a funeral for someone in the city of the Lord, and you see that gold pall, and you see the women dress the casket like that, and then, you know, um, it, it's really very impressionable to you when you see people. We don't just celebrate life, but we also celebrate death, and we celebrate the difficult things in life. So, I mean, there, there's so many aspects I could talk about within community life. Um, and again, I don't want people to think, oh my gosh, I can't do all of that. I don't have the time and bandwidth. But I'm, what I am saying is that, you know, in intentional community, as you grow in that, it builds on itself and the life gets richer and richer and richer. Yeah, that's very inspiring. Thanks, Tim, so much for presenting that picture, because I really think you know, like that it sounds so desirable. And people need, I think, that motivation to go through the difficult work of trying to actually build a community. Right. When one thing uh, uh, you mentioned is that you know you're fostering you know organic neighborhood interaction. Um, how geographically uh, close were the members of the community to one another? Where did they all did they all live in the same general location? Right. So uh, you know initially they were just spread out all over Phoenix, Phoenix, Tempe, Scottsdale. You know there were over like three different cities. You know people all over the place. But then uh, an amazing thing happened. One man had the idea that, you know, I think, I think it'd be great if we like developed a neighborhood. And he sold a house in a pretty nice place area of Paradise Valley and or Scottsdale um, and moved to a working class neighborhood in Tempe, which is kind of where there's a cluster now. And uh, over time, in, I don't know the number, 50 to 70 families moved into that same neighborhood, you know, maybe four or five block area with uh, a number of them very close to uh, late of Mount Carmel walking distance. In fact, you know, when my wife and I lived there, our house was on the parking lot of the parish so we could walk out and make it to 630 Mass. Um, But many families, it just, once it started to happen, then it just became desirable. Let's, let's live in closer proximity. So, but, so maybe half of the community lives in that cluster area and maybe half of it is still spread out in different areas of the city. It just, it makes life much easier. And uh, it adds a whole new dimension when you can do that, but it's not absolutely essential, but it is very nice. Yeah, that makes sense because it is so much easier, you know, when every community interaction doesn't have to be, um, you know, something planned, if it can just be, oh, you know, I see so-and-so out in his yard. And um, it's kind of sad because, you know, like some people I know, you know, they live not that far away, but still every extra mile is kind of an extra block to things just happening. Due to the length of our conversation, we needed to split it into two different podcast episodes. So in the next episode, we'll be discussing the problems and mistakes that can happen while trying to build community, uh, the importance of balancing the demands of community with the demands of family life, making sure that weaker members can stay the pace in a community, the four pillars of community life, the importance of reconciliation among community members, Tim Keller's vision for his new Sursum Corridor community, and also a practical set of steps for those interested in building community.